Well, good evening. Welcome to the UCL Institute of the Americas. My name is Tony McCulloch. I'm a senior fellow in North American Studies here and in charge of the Canadian Studies Programme. It's terrific to see such a large audience. Uh, obviously, the Canadian election and the result of the election has excited a, a great deal of interest, not only in Canada, but uh, uh, abroad. And uh, there's been a lot of coverage, relatively speaking, over here in the United Kingdom. Um, and we have an excellent panel to talk about the results of the election and, and the possible future direction of politics uh, in Canada. Just before I introduce them, uh, just to say, if you're not uh, familiar with the Canadian sort of seminar program here, we meet every other week uh, on a Monday evening during term time, except when there's a reading week. And the next event will be on the 16th of November, when Phil Buckner, who's in the audience, Professor Phil Buckner, uh, will be giving a uh, seminar, a paper, uh, and normally we hold our events next door. The seminars tend to have a smaller audience, more like 15 or 20, uh, on uh, Canada and the American Civil War. Uh, then on the 30th of November, uh, Gareth Davis, who's a PhD student, will also be talking about early Canadian history. And then on the 14th of December, we have our annual Quebec lecture, uh, and um, we will be having a, a talk on Quebec's so-called uh, silent revolution. Some of you may have heard of the quiet revolution, but this is silent, silent revolution by my good friend and colleague here, Jocelyn Letourneau, who I'll, I'll obviously introduce later as a member of the uh, panel. Um, and also, just to mention, the annual conference of the British Association for Canadian Studies, which is taking place at the British Library, not far from here, ten minutes from here, at the end of April. So, it gives me uh, enormous pleasure to introduce this panel of uh, friends and colleagues. Um, in the order that they'll be making their brief presentations, we, we hope most of the evening will be questions and answers for each of the panellists would be talking for about 10 minutes on a particular aspect of the Canadian election. Uh, so starting off on my extreme right, although I don't think he's on the extreme right when it comes to his politics, uh, Chris Kirkey, who's a professor of politics at the State University of New York, the uh, Plattsburgh campus, uh, director of Canadian studies there, and also uh, in charge of the uh, Centre for Quebec Studies. He'll particularly, as he's first on, he'll um, introduce the election results and particularly, I think, get into the question of how this surprise victory came. And it was a great surprise, as I'm sure most of you realise, as big a surprise, if not more so, than the Conservatives here winning an election majority uh, earlier in May. It did come as quite a surprise, although clearly the momentum was in favour of the Liberals in the last week or two. So Chris will start off. And then, uh, secondly, uh, Michael Hawes, a professor of politics at Queen's University, Kingston, and his main job, uh, executive director of Fulbright Canada. Uh, he'll particularly look at some of the uh, party policies and the personalities. And uh, obviously, one of the things about Justin uh, Trudeau being elected is that it clearly reminds us uh, of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, one of the longest serving and I think I can say controversial Prime Ministers in Canadian history. He served 15 years uh, in all. Uh, so there's uh, a, a clear opportunity to talk about the elder Trudeau. And then Jocelyn Letourneau, Professor of Contemporary History at, uh, of Quebec at Laval University. And uh, for this term, a visiting fellow at UCL, the UCL Institute of Education. And he'll particularly focus on the results in Quebec uh, and uh, what they mean for Quebec politics and also for federal politics. Um, and uh, I, I went to uh, a Canadian election breakfast at Canada House the day after the election, uh, last Tuesday, and I saw some of you there. And it was an excellent panel with Margaret McMillan and so on. But one aspect that wasn't mentioned at all was uh, the role of Quebec and the 
uh, factor of Quebec in the federal elections, which is always important. So we're leaving that mainly to Trostlin. And then finally, last but not least, um, a little bit nearer to home, Birmingham, uh, senior lecturer in American and Canadian history at Birmingham University, uh, Steve Hewitt, uh, who will be talking about the significance of the election for Canadian foreign policy uh, and for Canada's place in the world. So between the four, I think we'll have pretty good coverage. Uh, each will speak for about 10 minutes, and then we'll open it for questions and answers. Also, just to uh, remind you, at the end of the event, there is a wine reception. We'll hold the wine reception next door in room 105, and everyone is very welcome to join us then and to carry on the conversation with the presenters. So thank you very much, and Chris, over to you. Thanks, Tony. Um, I'd just like to take this opportunity at the outset on behalf of Steve Jocelyn, Michael, and myself to extend our thanks to Tony for inviting us into being back in London, University College London, having this opportunity at an important time. Um, I'm going to briefly, as they say in poker, check the bet to my friend Michael, who's going to say uh, a few prefatory words and flip it back to me. Michael. Okay, so the first good part is I'm a, I'm a better. Uh, I had Mr. Trudeau with a majority government on August the 15th. Everyone I knew laughed at me and said it was absolutely ridiculous. I'm also going to issue a small caveat. I'm not going to talk about uh, personalities, mainly because Mr. Harper doesn't have one. So we, don't, uh, we, we can't talk about that. What I'd like to talk about is the profiles of their leaders and their campaign strategies and why they ended up where they did. Um, but I did want to do a, a quick little background. In many ways, this was a historic election. It was about, according to the Prime Minister, staying the course as opposed to embracing change. It was about experience versus that guy who just wasn't ready. It was about then for the NDP and the Liberals, it was about who could effectively bring that change. So it was in fact an important election, not unlike uh, the one Mr. Harper lost on June 28, 2004. It was about change, and that change didn't come until January 29th, um, 2006. It was a long campaign by Canadian standards, and while you hear this over and over again, I think it's really important that we keep this in mind while we're talking tonight, because in many ways the outcome was driven by that choice, by the choice this government made to have an election campaign which at 78 days was more than double a typical Canadian election. Uh, it's also important to remember that uh, Mr. Harper had united the right back in the early 2000s uh, or engaged or successfully managed a hostile takeover of the old Progressive Conservative Party. So in fact, uh, he is the only leader the Conservative Party of Canada has ever had and the only prime minister. So in terms of understanding this in terms of the politics of right and left, which I think is important, he was the only person that party has ever known. I just check Michael that everyone can hear at the back. Is he okay? You might need to touch the logistics. All right, louder. So his first couple of victories were minority governments, not surprising. Change came slowly, also important in understanding this election. And then in 2011, he won a fairly significant majority government. The other bit of background that we should pay attention to is the NDP actually won a significant victory in coming in second with nearly 100 seats in 2011, making the expectations for the NDP very high. Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party got 34 seats in the 2011 elections, making sure the expectations were very low. The, uh, the, again, I'll get into this in a minute, but the current government faced some fairly serious challenges, a faltering economy, low global commodity prices, and in particular, low crude oil prices, which particularly hurt his core constituency. And in fact, weak economic performance overall, and to be frank, a weak 
record. The other thing that we should keep in mind, and uh, Jocelyn may not agree with me, but I'm going to say it anyway. From my perspective, Quebec separatism and Western alienation, which defined Canadian politics for four or more decades, was not present in this election. It wasn't about separatism. It wasn't about alienation. It wasn't about East versus West, although I suspect Chris will mention that the... Uh, the outcome in Saskatchewan and Alberta was fairly CPC-focused. Um, the truth of the matter, this was a plain, old-fashioned, ideological contest between the right and the left. So why don't I turn it over to you for some Thank you, sir. actual information. Okay, well, no, that was good. Um, well, won a majority of the seats of the 338 seats in the Canadian House of Commons, emerging with a total of 184 and as Michael said, uh, you can go and look right up to the last moment, the last polling um, done the day before the election, which showed that there was a strong probability that the, that the Liberal government was going to win a strong minority. But no official polling came out to suggest that the Liberals were going to do as well as they did, uh, with an uptick of 43% more seats than they had last time. Um, and as you can see from the statistics in front of you, 40% of the popular vote what was uh, striking, I think, for those of us, uh, much like David Cameron and the Conservative Party's victory here in the UK, which came as a jolt, a surprise, pleasant or unpleasant to some folks, um, so too is the case with Justin Trudeau and the Liberal. If you turn, you know, you turn the television on in central Canada and you see the, the early election results coming in on the eastern part in the Maritime Provinces where there are 32 seats and all of a sudden it's very clear that the Liberals are winning or leading in all 32. You knew something was up. And then slowly but surely as polls closed in Ontario and Quebec and Manitoba and the western part of Canada, it became abundantly clear that the Liberals were going to win and win big. Um, they won, I think one of the things that's telling is that they won a majority in eight of the ten provinces. Um, the only two provinces they didn't win a majority are Saskatchewan and Alberta, dominated by sort of um, uh, conservative, ideologically um, rural concerns and concerns uh, tied ultimately to uh, commodity pricing, as Michael mentioned a moment ago. Um, another thing that was fascinating to look at is how well the Liberal Party did in metropolitan areas across Canada. So if you take a map and you look at Vancouver, and you even look at Calgary, where the Liberals won a couple of seats for the first time since 1968, and then you move to Winnipeg again, you come to Toronto, and Toronto, the greater Toronto area, in the last election, the Conservative Party under Stephen Harper in 2011 did a wonderful job uh, on the politics of sort of courting uh, new immigrants to Canada. And had, it had been basically, it was blue in color associated with the Conservative Party. This time, only two um, members uh, uh, from the greater Toronto area, uh, Thornhill and Markham Unionville, were elected uh, to the Conservative Party. It was a sea of red. It was decidedly liberal. You go to Ottawa, the nation's capital, uh, uniformly red. You go to Montreal. You go to Halifax. Um, and even the two core downtown ridings in Quebec City um, are liberal. Um, it's, it's, it's quite impressive, to say the least. The Conservatives, where did they draw their votes from, apart from Alberta and southern Saskatchewan? Well, Manitoba, uh, western and eastern Ontario, and rural Quebec. Um, the NDP, surprisingly, um, they did fairly well in large swaths of First Nations regions across Canada, except for the three seats in the Yukon Northwest Territories, and none of it that went entirely to uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, the Bloc Québécois, as Jocelyn will no doubt speak of, uh, uh, did well, particularly north of Montreal. Um, it's fascinating when you look at this breakdown, um, and I'll just say a couple of quick words before turning the, the panel over from sort of coast to coast. I'll start in the Atlantic region. Um, Pr Prime Minister Harper was never particularly popular in Atlantic Canada. He memorably characterized Atlantic Canada as embracing a culture of defeat. Um, uh, Mr. Trudeau's commitment, as you know, one of the principal things that helped to, 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 to distinguish the Liberal Party 
and in fact position the Liberal Party for victory was that some say he outflanked the NDP. The NDP typically is, has been a party for years that sort of, you know, in some ways been like the current Labour Party in the UK has moved to the left. Under Mr. Mulcair, Tom Mulcair, they moved to the centre, but the Liberals outflanked them and uh, offered a sharp contrasting vision to either the Conservatives or NDP about the role of the state and the role of government in every peop everyday people's lives. In the face of a stagnant economy, the idea of the central government providing stimulus, $5 billion a year for three years, was especially in an area of slow growth, like Atlantic Canada. This is an area where voters have consistently looked for government to generate investment and employment, and that hurt them, um, uh, hurt, hurt the other two parties. The Conservatives had also made some silly cuts to uh, employment insurance that have been highly condemned because it's a region of high joblessness. Um, in the wonderful province of Manitoba, not Manitoba, sorry, Newfoundland, uh, former Premier uh, Danny Williams <laughs> really campaigned aggressively, he's a Liberal, campaigned aggressively against Mr. Harper, saying that uh, the Conservative leader was lacking in integrity, could not be trusted. He ran a campaign called the ABC campaign, anybody but Conservative. Um, New Brunswickers uh, turned to, if you will, the Liberals to help uh, boost a moribund economy. Um, Prince Edward Island remained angry over the scandal that had involved Senator Mike Duffy, who had been appointed by Mr. Harper to represent the island, although he hadn't lived there for many years. And I think maybe years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> many, many, many of you are familiar with that um, uh, story. Um, so it, it was a, a real tough, tough period for them, to say the least. I'll save, my, I'll save the Quebec comments for Jocelyn, um, except to say it's fascinating that Monsieur Trudeau made some very key breakthroughs with the Francophone vote in Quebec, so, which is a, a real interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, the Liberal Party swept much of Ontario. You know, they have 66.1% of the popular vote in Ontario. It's incredible. Um, uh, and it moved them back. If you go back and you look at the electoral map of Ontario in 2004 when they won 75 out of 106 seats, it's very similar today. They've done, um, they've done a superb job in sort of um, in the greater um, uh, Toronto area and beyond. As you'll appreciate, there were some issues that came up during the campaign, and I don't know to the extent my colleagues are going to talk about this, but, you know, the Syrian migrant crisis. Um, Stephen Harper came off, um, and I think deservedly so, as being indifferent, callous, and uncaring about the fate of um, people who were desperate for assistance. Um, and uh, that flew in the face of what Canada, post-1945, had been right up until the time Stephen Harper came into power in 2006, which was a country uh, that in terms of its commitment to international engagement was, was very much a compassionate um, country driven by uh, humanitarian needs and a willingness to help the international community. Um, switching from Ontario, if we can, quickly over to the West, um, uh, the Liberals, like I said, did very well um, in the city of Winnipeg. The Prairies were a little bit more... Um, of a challenge as as it was expected to be, um, but they did win four seats in Alberta and one. They have one seat in the province of Saskatchewan, um, so they are represented across the board. And in fact, in British Columbia, um, they did quite well. Um, they had only won, for example, um, two seats in 2011, um, and it was a it was a huge uptick. Some of the key issues in British Columbia were local. Um, question about protecting coastal waters, about the, the Prime Minister Harper had closed the Coast Guard base, which was widely unpopular, the notion of upgrading and constructing new light rail and subway projects in the greater Vancouver area was also a topic of concern. Um, but at the end of the day, and I'm going to close on this remark, um, I can remember as a kid growing up in Ontario in the 1970s and into the early 80s, and when you would look at an electoral map of Canada, it looked a hell of a lot like the one I saw on October 19th, when the Liberals, under a different Mr. Trudeau, would win. 
Um, they wouldn't win as big in British Columbia, and they wouldn't win as big in Quebec, but they would win, and the, the sort of coalition is very much there. So, Thank you. So I'm a political science professor, so I have a theory about politics and elections. My theory is that nobody wins elections. Other people lose elections. Mr. Harper lost this election. People can enhance the quality or the extent of their win, but typically people lose elections. So the biggest question asked when you're looking at party leaders' profiles of the campaign itself is how did he lose and why was there such a decisive vote against him and in the end for Mr. Trudeau. So what I want to do is really focus on that. So what we have to do is first ask, what was Mr. Harper's situation when he called this election? Now, he had instituted two new laws, a law which required we have elections at a certain time, which seems to have been a bad choice on his part, and a law which required that the federal government have a balanced budget, also which seems to be a bad choice were I one of his advisors. In truth, he went into the election with some fairly significant negatives. One, 10 years is a long time for a government. Ask any political scientist, that's about the length of time before fatigue sets in. We were tired of Mr. Harper, and we were tired of the Conservative government. By we, I mean most Canadians. Even the party faithful were a little tired of Mr. Harper. It was a long time. And in fact, any prime minister suffers that 10-year fatigue factor. Secondly, and I guess it might have been a tiny bit harsh to say he doesn't have a personality, but he's not a likable guy. He really is not a likable guy. I'm not even sure his family likes him. He, he used to have his PR people take pictures of him with kittens. So I swear, as God is my witness, with kittens. And there was a whole period with the sweater vests. There's been a constant attempt to soften the man up, to make him seem human. He's not a good retail politician, and he's not a warm person. And in the, his past couple of elections, he's run against individuals who have been not dissimilar in their personality traits and characteristics, so that wasn't an issue. I am going to come back to the fact that, in truth, he was running against a man who turned out to be fairly charismatic, and he did him the gigantic favor of allowing him enough time to find his voice. Without those 78 days, Mr. Trudeau may have never found his voice and never been the guy we saw in those last two weeks in October. So for me, that was absolutely critical. Also on the negatives, he'd lost some fairly significant cabinet ministers. I don't think people realized how important Jim Flaherty, the finance minister, was to that party and that government. He was steady, he was stable, he was a voice of reason, he was the voice of experience, and when Mr. Harper claimed he managed the economy, what he really meant is that Mr. Flaherty managed the economy. Sadly, Mr. Flaherty died, these things happened. He put in a 75-year-old uh, PR guy from the old Investment Dealers Association, Joe Oliver, as a finance minister. I gotta tell you, that didn't inspire a lot of confidence in me. Number four, I think, he was not just his personality, but as a leader, he was seen as distant. He was undemocratic. The Syrian example is a perfect illustration. He finally came around to the notion that we would admit Syrian refugees in some numbers. Each file had to be approved by his office. Each file had to be approved by his office. For me, this is a bizarre notion of democracy. What he really meant to say is, I don't want them, but I need to say this out loud, so we'll create a situation where they're not going to be chosen. The Duffy scandal, the Senator Duffy, who uh, was an imaginary resident of Prince Edward Island and who behaved in a way that was suspicious with respect to his time in the Senate, frankly, I don't think it was a big deal, although it helps explain why the 78 days. The Prime Minister wanted that out of the way before the real campaign started. He also had more money than everybody else, so he wanted to have them spend out 
And then in the last 30 days, the 30 days that actually mattered, he and the CPC would have money. On the weak side, he had a weak economy, and his core constituency, as I mentioned before, were particularly hard hit by the economic woes of the country. And as, uh, as you've heard already, there was an ABC or ABH factor, anybody but Harper. So there was a strong commitment. I, uh, I love Danny Williams. I had dinner with him one night, and he told me this story about how he, he when he was elected, uh, he went to grade two class and explained what his views of the world were. And he said, there's nothing harder than explaining things to seven-year-olds. So they asked him a question. They said, Mr. Williams, why do you have that stupid part in the middle of your head? He had his hair parted right down in the middle. He said, you know, boys and girls, it's because I represent Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> in Labrador, there's a disproportionately large number of indigenous and aboriginal persons. Mr. Mr. Williams was campaigning for them. It wasn't an issue. Mr. Harper was incredibly insensitive to aboriginal persons, and his government was incredibly insensitive to aboriginal persons. On the plus side, though, he had some real positives. They had money, a lot more money than everybody else. They have a core constituency. Roughly 30% of Canadians always vote conservative, always. Whether they're called the Progressive Conservatives or the Conservative Party of Canada, whoever they are, roughly 30%, and we know where they live, we know who they are, we know why they vote Conservatives, and they weren't changing. So unlike the other two parties who were split, the left was split, Mr. Harper came into this election with a core constituency he knew he had 30%. So what he needed was to convince 9% of Canadians to travel with him again down this road, and he couldn't do that. He also had the advantage of having some real experience. He'd been in power 10 years. He was very fond of saying that he was the longest-serving Western leader. Mrs. Merkel might take some exception to that because she was elected earlier, but who cares? He was longish, longest-serving leader. So what happened? One, he relied way too heavily on the positives, and he didn't play his hand very well. Two, he went in early with a fairly negative campaign against Mr. Trudeau. Canadians don't like this. There were lots of jokes about Mr. Trudeau's hair, which is very nice, and, and about him being young, and he was more or less the same age as Mr. Harper was when he became Prime Minister. But, you know, young's relative. You know, I had, uh, I, uh, had a colleague who took her students from Carleton down to the American elections in 2008, the primaries, and, uh, and they were all helping Mrs. Clinton. The, some reporter asked them why they were there, and they said, you know, because she's young and dynamic and on top of things. He said to her, but she's 60 and your guy's 42. And the student said, yeah, but he's old. He's just old. So there was this impression of Mr. Harper that backed up that fatigue thing. About halfway through, Mr. Harper switched to a more positive message, focusing on the economy, backing away from the direct attacks. But in my view, I think that was too late. As I said before, I don't think he handled either the multicultural issue very well or the indigenous issue very well. And I think it's because he doesn't believe in those things. I don't, I, you know, you might have guessed already I'm not a firm supporter of the Conservative Party of Canada. But he's not been good on those issues. He just hasn't because he has a vision of Canada that I believe doesn't conform, and the polls and the vote suggest that, doesn't conform with the view most Canadians have of Canada. It was an aberration for us we have had generations of fairly left-of-center uh, political leadership, not just from the Liberal Party, but from Mr. Clark's Conservative Party, from Kim Campbell, however short her tenure was. Don't laugh, I love Kimmy. Um, it, it's a thing for us. So, I think he just played it wrong. 
there were five leaders, but really only three matter. I could talk about, uh, about Elizabeth May. She is a person of great conviction. She's smart. She's interesting. But she was only ever going to win one seat. So no matter what she said, it really, and I apologize, it didn't matter. It just didn't matter because she was going to win her seat in the south part of Vancouver Island and all the, the sheep-raising, whale-watching folks in Salt Spring were going to vote for her. But that's all she was going to get. So I, I can't justify taking a lot of time talking about her. Mr. Mulcair, uh, by contrast, positioned himself as the real alternative on the left. They'd won big in the 2011 election, primarily because Mr. Layton uh, had claimed that, uh, that he represented Quebec and that he was a person in, who indeed he was of great moral conviction. And sadly, he was dying at the time. He knew he was dying at the time. He and I were, uh, were graduate students together. Uh, he was, had been a Toronto City Councillor. We did our PhD at the same time. He was about 10 years older than me, but we were physically in offices beside one another. So I knew him pretty well. Um, in that last election, he was the guy he always wanted to be, whereas for all of his life, he was not that guy. But he was that guy in 2011, and in my view, that was an aberration. I never had the NDP. I did daily aggregate polling of my own. Um, he, in my mind, he never, ever had more than 40 seats from day one. I don't care if he was in first place or Uber first place. There was no way he was ever getting more than, than 40 seats. He also made, and on top of that, expectations were incredibly high. His people, those core supporters, his party, those people running for the party honestly believed they were going to win. This was like Mitt Romney. I mean, they, they actually believed they were going to win. But everything that we know indicated that they were not. And then he made some monumental mistakes. We can talk about this in the question period, but the kneecap decision was just bad. I know, again, he's a man of principle, but he should have walked away from that. Anybody polling for him could have told him how that would have played in the province of Quebec. It was not a winner. And literally, the wheels fell off on whatever it was, the 1st of October, the French language debate. And frankly, from that day on, they were in third place and were never going to bounce back. Mr. Mulcair did do a good job campaigning. For those of us who know him a little, he's just angry Tom. He's an angry guy. He's always angry. And in fact, he found himself with two monumental uh, negatives. One, he didn't want to be angry, Tom, because we don't like angry guys and we don't trust angry guys and we don't vote in angry guys. So he had to behave in a way that was fairly constrained. And I don't think that was him. I think he found it hard to run a campaign where he wasn't himself. And secondly, and I think this is, this is probably uh, the biggest part of it, because the NDP are traditionally the party of the left, traditionally both socially left and fiscally left, our expectations were that he might take us too far to the left, too far, especially on the fiscal side. So in response to that, what he did is stayed very, very close to the center. The NDP has a, a split core constituency. They have steel workers and they have petty bourgeois intellectuals such as myself. When you stay that close to the center, you lose both those groups. And they now have Quebecers. But there was another issue there. So in truth, while I think Mr. Mulcair was smart to be honest to himself, he wasn't strategic. And again, after that, he was done. So Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau was, in, in fact, a long shot when the campaign began. But as I said before, Mr. Harper did him a huge favor by giving him 78 days to identify himself to the Canadian people. They also, he was really advantaged by being the underdog. Canadians love underdogs. We love people who don't really have a hope in hell of winning anything and then do. There was a genuineness, but when he started out the campaign, he was awful. He read speeches right off his cue cards. 
He used big, fancy words that he neither believed in nor cared about. And he tried to re resurrect what we in the old Liberal Party used to call the big tent. Include everyone. Get everybody under the tent. We're the party of inclusion, the party of new Canadians, the party of young people, the party of older Canadians, the party of immigrants, the party of refugees. It's big tent. It's always big tent. It's not him. What he did about a third of the way through is change the strategy and started speaking about what he knew. And for him, it was a huge decision, a huge positive decision, because his biggest single decision was to stake out a spot on the left, as Chris said, to talk about deficit financing, to talk about infrastructure development, to talk about jobs, to talk about growth, and to not worry about the fact that during difficult economic times in Canada is the only Western country that is currently actually in recession. Two periods of economic, negative economic growth, two of my degrees are in economics, I'm pretty sure that's recession. You have two periods of negative economic growth, you're in recession, we are the only state. He spoke directly to me, and to you, and to you, and to you. He said, we need to resolve what is one of our single biggest problems, and that's the fact that we're not growing. We're disjointed economically, we're dysfunctional economically, and we have to change this. And then he went back to Big Tent and talked about multiculturalism, talked about Aboriginal Canadians, talked about Indigenous issues, talked about new Canadians, talked about Syrians, and frankly, this for him was a big winner. At the end of the day, there was one other factor that I think really matters, the Just Not Ready campaign, which Prime Minister Harper and his folks led with. The Just Not Ready campaign was perhaps the biggest single gift Mr. Trudeau got during the campaign. Because if anybody says to me I'm not ready, my response is always the same. I'll tell you what I'm ready for. You want to know what I'm ready for? Anything that you don't do. Anything that benefits Canadians, anything that grows the economy, anything that engages people in this country, any way that I can listen to people, that I can have advisors that matter, that I can talk to Aboriginal people, that I can bring people from the provinces. Was he ready? Absolutely. So we had one more thing, and I want to end with this. I know I'm probably over my 10 minutes. I'm not good at limits and rules. The other point I think that was absolutely critical is at the foreign policy debate, and I'll leave this to Steve to talk about the details there. It was at the Monk Center. Um, Mr. Griffiths was moderating that. Tom Mulcair made, took some really cheap shot at Pierre Elliott Trudeau, which we can talk about in the, uh, in the question period. And Justin that night stopped being Justin and became Mr. Trudeau. Mr. Trudeau said, this is not about my father. I grew up with that man. I loved him. I learned values. I learned to be who I am. This is not about him. He wouldn't want this. He wouldn't accept this. You got a fight to pick, pick it with me. And for me, that was the single most important moment of the campaign. And I'll end with that. Thank you. As Tony said at the beginning, I will focus mainly on, on Quebec. And the uh, first thing I, I'm going to say is that Liberals actually won the federal election in Quebec as well. As Table 1 shows, please look at the handout. Not only did the Liberals pick up most ridings, but they also got most of the votes cast in. True, the Bloc Québécois went up from 4 to 10 ridings, but it dropped 4 points of percentage in terms of ballots. It's the party's worst performance since it was formed, in 1993, as Table 3 indicates. Similarly with the Conservatives, they went up from five ridings to 12, but had almost no gain in terms of vote cast in. Useless to say a word about the NDP. This party is the big loser of this election in the province of Quebec, both in terms of ridings, minus 43, and ballots, minus 17.5 points of percentage. So what is the explanation of all that? There are many. Let's begin with the easiest. In Quebec, as in the rest of Canada, sorry for that expression, the word was anyone but Harper. 
At first sight, it did not work so well because the conservatives took seven more ridings compared with the score they obtained in the previous election. Now we have to be careful with this increase. Many conservatives who won were actually local stars. For example, Denis Lebel in Robert Val, Gérard Deltel in Charlebourg, Maxime Bernier in Beau, Stephen Blaney in Lévy, and Jacques Gourde in Lobinière. In fact, people voted for these men in particular rather than for the party, and less even so for Harper. I really think that Harper's mode of governance irritated many Quebecers, as it did with a lot of Canadians. That said, conservatism is alien to Quebec's political culture no more than it is to Canadian political culture. You get a stable proportion of about 15% of the population, mostly con concentrated in rural areas around Quebec City, that are truly conservative, and that base will remain. Now, the call to defeating Harper do not explain why the liberals won the election in Quebec. As they did in the 2011 elections, voters could have supported the NDP. They did not. Why so? Before the election, I was not sure if the NDP surprising score of 2011 had been the result of a specific situation or the outcome of a trend that would last. Now we know. NDP's amazing score of winning 59 out of 75 ridings in 2011 was largely due to Jack Layton's charismatic figure, due also to Michael Ignatieff's inability to attract people, due thirdly to people's fatigue with the Bloc Québécois and its outdated rhetoric about Quebec's alienation in Canada, and due finally to their untrusting of Harper. In 2011, people supported NDP for negative or default reasons more than for positive motives. NDP is not deeply anchored in Quebec's political culture. I personally doubt that more than 15% of the population actively support the party. In 2011, most Quebecers were with the NDP for a one-election stand. Now they moved to someone else. That someone else is truly Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party of Canada. People in Quebec, Francophones included, really supported the man and his party. While conservatives and blockists raised the number of their seats because vote, vote split among different parties in certain writings, liberals did not want the election in Quebec because they dodged between the conservatives, the NDP, and the Bloc Québécois. As shown in Table 2, only five liberal candidates, only five liberal candidates out of 40 won their riding with less than five points of percentage before their nearest rival. Overall, when we look at the 78 ridings, liberals' candidates were first in 40 ridings and second in 30 more. According to my counting, liberals were really defeated in 19 ridings. 28 if we include those who were behind their opponent by a margin of six to nine points of percentage. True, I agree with that, liberals were very strong in Anglophone Quebec, but they were strong in Francophone Quebec as well, no matter they won the writing or not. Now, why Trudeau? Everything has been said about the man. Let's recall the most common statements to be heard in Quebec. At 43, Justin, contemptuous calling is young and superficial. He's not really a leader. Nationalists would go, would go even further. He's the chief, they would say, of that party that was behind the sponsorship scandal, a party also that runs a very centralizing kind of federalism, of federalism that sweeps the historical and current interests of Quebec. Worst of all, Justin Trudeau is the devil's elder son. Okay, so why Trudeau and its fellow liberals? Well, Quebec might be experiencing a kind of silent revolution for some years now. Contrary to what some commentators say, things actually change in Maria Chapdelaine's country. I'll come back briefly to this idea later. To understand why Trudeau and the liberals won, let's begin with the personal quality of the young man, which I think everyone acknowledge, even the coldest analyst, as I try to be. Justin Trudeau is relatively young, very charismatic, and, and optimistic. He smiles truly. 
He likes people and he says he wants change. He believes in the future to the point that he's ready to carry budget deficits to stimulate the economy. While everyone knows that he belongs to the rich and the famous, he, flanked with his wife and alter ego, Sophie Grégoire, no accent, acts as if he'd be part of the middle class, a social category he says he speaks out for. He also takes his wife in his arms in a way that is not staged. He carries his young kids, play with them, and so on. He has an appealing style. Is it the Canadian style that Harper had not anymore? And a body language that please. To be sure, we cannot talk of something like a Justin Trudeau mania. But it seems that he has been able to take the Trudeau-phobia out of the collective imagination of many Quebecers, which is something. Young Trudeau, and I will quote my wife here, represents for Quebecers what Obama incarnated for the Americans in 2008, and perhaps what Kate Middleton and Prince William embody for the British today. Justin Trudeau is perceived as a relief of old time and a possibility for new time. With him, many think we may perhaps, don't forget we're Canadians or Quebecers, not Americans. Eh? Okay, would say the nationalists who would still make a lot of noise in the public arena. The guy is charming, but he's the son of his father, don't you recall that? And the Clarity Act, it doesn't tell you anything. And his top advisors, all people outside Quebec and all Anglos, no trouble with that. The problem with nationalists is that they are more and more at bay with the current evolution of Quebec's political culture. They think their vision of Quebec matches the reality of society. They should listen to a great philosopher of our time, the late Yogi Berra, I'm joking of course, but not completely, who once said, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. <laughs> Nationalists should go on the ground and sniff the talk of the town instead of dreaming the big night. While I have not been able to find breakdowns of the vote in terms of age, it is possible that many young people actually supported the liberals in Quebec, always. These young people are not stupid or apolitical. They feel being Quebecers, truly so, and want to carry the culture they inherited and are proud of, but they're not hooked to the past. For them, the, the sponsorship scandal, for example, is from another time, and its main actors are long gone. The, centralization, the centralizing inclination of the liberals? Well, the catchword for young Quebecois these days is not independence, and neither is it dependence, of course, but interdependence. In other words, to be for youth means to participate, and participation means that you have to put some water in your wine provided that the other party will do the same at some point. Youth, no matter what was seen in the street of Montreal in the spring of 2012, is currently attracted by pragmatic solutions more than by ideological clash. What about Trudeau le Père? Well, young people barely know about Pierre Trudeau. He doesn't count in their political imagination anymore. I'd go for the, further. For the majority of Quebecers, Pierre Trudeau remains a reference figure probably more positive than many nationalists think, no matter they have demonized the man for a long time. Anyway, young people are with the son, not with the father, and the son will be a man of his time, as his father was a man of his. Moreover, it seems that Justin has a personality different from Pierre. He will want to associate his name with his own way of doing things. Justin might not be the reincarnation of Pierre. The Clarity Act of 1999? Well, Lucien Bouchard stepped down in the year 2000 partly because he was annoyed by the weak resistance Quebecers expressed against the bill. Could it be that Quebecers did not care about the bill or worse, were happy with it? To appreciate the situation, it would be worth leaving aside the nationalist trope of telling the history of Quebec. I could go on without a reason, especially put forward by the nationalist not to vote for the liberals or Justin Trudeau. It seems that their arguments failed short to convince. Of course, young people were not the only one who supported the liberals. In fact, many people did. 
And they did it for different reasons. These reasons, it seems to me, have a lot to do with the discourse of change Justin Trudeau carried out and incarnated during the campaign. In this election, change and imagination, kind of let's try things differently discourse, prevailed over Harper's buzzwords stability and security, which had hardly carried a vision of the country. But it's not only that. Liberals have a long established base in Quebec. For punctual reasons, corruption, drab leaders, few high-profile francophones in the party, strict federalist ideology, the party had its bad time for a decade, from 2004 to now. Now is a different situation. Justin Trudeau is magnetic and is francophone. He's francophone. He belongs to a new generation that has nothing to do or so little to do with dirty politics. Surely Justin Trudeau is a federalist. We've got to see how he'll work it out, hopefully, hopefully in a pragmatic manner, which means in a flexible and accommodating way. Never mind, it seems that Quebecers are able to take a lot of federalism. The majority of Quebecers, francophone included, are indeed federalists, or at least not against this kind of political option. I want it to be a cold statement based on research. Even in the period going from the middle of the 70s to the middle of the 90s, first choice of Quebecers, no matter their nationalist rhetoric, was to be part of something bigger, namely Canada. Now it seems that federalism has become again fashionable in Quebec, not to say a credible option that can be supported openly in public, which was not the case in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Of course, the idea of independence is still around. It will always be. Also, I don't think that Quebecers have become apostles of federalism. But clearly, as shown in Table 3 and Table 4, the idea of independence carried out by the PQ and the Bloc, is in decline for almost two decades in the province. Quebecers are looking for something else. This is part of the silent revolution I talked about earlier. What to expect on the political front in Quebec in regard to the future of federal political parties, and I will conclude on this. Let's begin with the NDP. Not sure this party has a rosy future in Quebec. In the country as a whole, it confirmed its historical and structural third place on the podium. In Quebec, it's shown that it was probably nothing but a flash in the pan. At 60, Tom Mulcair may stay, but I'm afraid he won't be able to bring the party higher than where it stands now. Quebecers are tired of being excluded from the ministry cabinet. Voting NDP, or BQ for that matter, is a ticket to be away from power. In that regard, it is possible that the polls, who shown a trend favorable for the Liberals almost from the beginning of the campaign, but very strong after September 29th, played a role in reinforcing the impetus of the Liberals in Quebec and added to the NDP downfall. Quebecers want to be in the loop of power in Ottawa. Their best chance was the Liberals. They went with them. In my sense, the Conservatives will probably remain where they are for a while, and dispute for the second place with NDP and BQ if that latter party survives the next elections, which is not sure. Indeed, we shall be realistic in, in regard to the bloc. The party is weak, no matter it is now with 10 seats in the Commons. His chief, Gilles Duceppe, has been defeated a second time in a row in his own writing. He wanted to terminate his political career with a personal victory. He failed. Rightly so, he has announced he's stepping down. It's a no-future situation for the bloc, so more so that only one of its MPs has any parliamentary experience, Louis Plamondon, the other being neophytes. In fact, everything is really in the hand of liberals. If they do fine, I expect them to consolidate their support and in the next election add to the number of MPs they get elected in Quebec. What means to be fine? First step is getting back to what people call the Canadian values, which Quebecers are attuned to, no matter what is said. Second step is to manifest openness to some Quebec demands, which, by the way, are not only Quebec's but other provinces as well, Ontario in particular, that, by the way, help defeat the Conservatives. 
For that matter, the situation might be good for Trudeau, whose vis-a-vis in Quebec City is Philippe Couillard, a believer in pragmatic federalism. It may be that power in Canada has decisively shifted east. In the quadrangle formed by Toronto, Ottawa, Quebec City, and Montreal, where former Liberal MP Denis Coderre is reigning as a king. According to Jean-François Lisée, a PQ MP and tireless commentator, the coming of power of Justin Trudeau, a man he described as a radical multiculturalist and centralizing federalist, federalist like his father was, will be a winning condition for the independentists to get momentum because Trudeau's ideology will collide with Quebecers' expectations. Perhaps Lizzie's right, but even though Quebecers would be bugged by Justin Trudeau's governance, politics, ideology, rhetoric, or by his smiling face, they won't go for independence because this is not what they want in the end. If Trudeau's don't do well, Quebecers may opt for other parties in the next elections, both in Quebec City and in Ottawa. In Quebec City, though, it might be the CAQ, Coalition Avenir Quebec, instead of the PQ, led by the overtly independentist Pierre-Carl Pelado, that will get an impetus. In Ottawa, I don't know. Liberals will have to be very bad to lose the place they got in Quebec. Uh, I'm going to make a few comments just about the election result and then talk about foreign policy, and we'll try to do it quickly. First of all, it's great to see such an amazing turnout here to discuss the demise of the Harper government. Reminds me of the, uh, the line when Louis Mayer, the movie mogul, died, and there was a huge turnout at his funeral. Someone commented on it, and the other person said, well, you know, if you give the people what they want. <laughs> so I, I just want to talk quickly about the election result and give you a theory, which I'm going to, I'm going to be a bit provocative as to why the Liberals won. And they won it because of my 21-year-old son. There we go. Because um, I think the most remarkable statistic that I saw out of uh, the 19th of October is that the Conservative vote was only 235,000 votes less than in 2011. The NDP <coughs> vote dropped by over a million. The Liberal vote went up by 4 million. That means it, new voters people like my 21-year-old son who voted for the first time made the difference in terms of that result. You know, maybe the million votes of the NDP switched the Liberals, but that doesn't explain it uh, alone. Now, I should add, my son also worked on a couple of Liberal campaigns in the, the KW area. And the other things that he was doing, he was canvassing, he was registering students to vote, he was making phone calls, he was doing the electoral base, basics that are often forgotten. Because I, I was struck by, if you remember the um, aftermath of the election here in the UK and the, the, de, the demise of Labour. And there was a cartoon in Private Eye showing a couple of young Labour supporters, you know, distraught. And one of them said, I don't understand how it could have happened. I tweeted, I Instagrammed, I Facebooked, and the other one says, well, maybe we should have tried voting in terms of... Uh, <laughs> and so the Conservatives, uh, this is where I think I might cause some... I think the Conservatives actually, in a very evil, Machiavellian way, ran a very clever campaign. I think the odds were always against them. They knew that because, of, as Michael said, they'd been in office for a long time because of the economic downturn. So what they needed to do was get their base out, which they did do, and they needed to suppress the vote, which they attempted to do with the Fair Elections Act. I mean, that's a wonderful um, title, Fair Elections Act. I had a political scientist once when I was a student who said, about uh, any country that has democratic in the title, you can guess it's not democratic. Or Fair Elections Act was an effort to require more ID. It was clearly designed to, you know, aimed at trying to deter young people from voting. Uh, there was a funny um, sort of onion-style story on election day that Stephen Harper had put out a terrorism warning uh, that applied to young voters going to urban ridings that they were at high risk of a, a terrorist attack and therefore for elderly voters kind of like us four here who kind of resemble the conservative base that should stay home. So these new voters, despite this effort, came out and, I mean, they made a difference. If they had, if the conservatives had kept, if the turnout had been what it was in 2011, we would be sitting here talking about a conservative minority or possibly a conservative majority. So I guess the question is, why did the, the vote go to liberals? And I think Jocelyn hit the, you know, the magnetism of Trudeau and, and, and things such as that. The other quick aspect observation is looking at the map of the election result uh, for Southern Ontario, 
I mean, I was struck how it looked like a sea with red islands. So the, the blue, there were the blue conservative rural areas, and then there would be KW, which is Red Island, Guelph, Red Island, uh, London, which had red and orange. And I was struck again in, in Toronto being this huge red island. And I thought, this map reminds me of something. It reminded me of England after the 2015 vote, where you had red Birmingham, red Manchester, and then the blue areas. And I'm, you're seeing this increasing division between diverse multicultural cities that are voting center, center left, and the more traditional areas that are, are, are still voting conservative. I mean, people like where I'm from, which is Oxford County. So I should have my, my family are conservative voters and weren't very happy with my son uh, working as a, as a young liberal. I've never voted liberal in my life, so it was a bit strange as well that he's, uh, he's active in the liberal party. Um, quickly about foreign policy. Um, some of you may have seen there was a, a meme going around during the election. I saw it on Facebook where it was about peacekeeping. And it said, and it showed every prime minister since Joe Clark and it said, Every Prime Minister since Joe Clark, Canada has been the number one contributor to peacekeeping, except for Stephen Harper, who Canada is now 62nd. And the thing about that meme, it reminds me of that Abraham Lincoln quote, which you can found, find online, where Lincoln said, the problem with internet quotes is they're not always accurate. Because the problem with that meme is it's not true. It was during the correction era that Canada stopped being the top peacekeeping nation. And so the point I want to make today is I see the change that's coming in Canada's foreign policy being much more about symbolism and style than about substance because some of the issues are long-term issues that predate the Conservative Party, issues around foreign aid, issues around military spending, um, issues such as that. So the, um, and I was struck as well, by the way, and again, this is where I think the Conservatives were uh, clever the last few years, I re-watched the Monk debate that Michael referred to today on foreign policy, and so much of what they talked about were actually not foreign policy issues. They were talking about immigration, they were talking about um, domestic security, uh, they were talking about sort of domestic defense policy, and I think the Conservatives have been very clever the last few years, again in a Machiavellian way, of taking Canada's foreign policy and making it completely about domestic policy. So one way of understanding Canadian foreign policy and how it's been inconsistent is to think of it in domestic terms. So Canada boycotted the Commonwealth Conference in Sri Lanka because of human rights abuses by the Sri Lankan government. That was about Tamil Canadian voters around Toronto. Canada you know, won't criticize the Netanyahu government no matter what it does against Palestinians. That's about trying to win over Jewish Canadian voters. Canada's taken a tough line against Putin over Ukraine, even at the same time that Canada refuses to increase its spending to the NATO requested 2%. That's about Ukrainian Canadian voters, um, and that's about keeping down taxes and all of those sorts of things. So, I mean, that has been a trend. I mean, it obviously, it's not the first government to do so, but it, it certainly took it to, to, to an extreme that way. So, I have to say I'm not terribly optimistic that Liberals are going to be much different. I, I looked in vain at their promises today. And they were so, so limited in terms of, of depth, their, their platform around foreign policy. Uh, there were things like, our plan will restore Canada as a leader in the world, but no kind of explanation other than Stephen Harper will be gone. And again, it will make a difference in terms of having a, a dynamic Justin Trudeau who you know, can appear on the world stage and, and not be seen as, as uh, Canadian leaders often are, as dull as dishwater. But in terms of substance, you know, and again, you know, Trudeau's already announced that the premiers will be going with him to the climate change talks, and that's obviously you know, going to be a new priority. But in terms of, you know, will the Canada increase its defense budget? Will it increase its foreign aid budget? You know, there are limits around the, uh, the situation with the economy. There are limits around the Harper, how Harper has changed the Canadian state in terms of shrinking it and making it more difficult to have a, have a more expansive state. I also don't see radical change in Canada's approach to the United States. Uh, it really is, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really is the only foreign relationship that ultimately matters. And, um, you know, the political power obviously all lies with the United States in an era of declining oil prices and growing American energy production. Canada is less important. I mean, I had a laugh over the Keystone debate, which Trudeau supports the Keystone pipeline. Do you remember when Harper said he wouldn't take no for an answer and there was talk that Canada would retaliate against the United States, which was such a ridiculous proposition considering how 
dependent Canada is on the American economy. Well, unless the Republicans take the White House next year, I mean, I don't think he, Hillary Clinton's come out against Keystone. Um, Obama is, clearly seems opposed to Keystone. So there's not much Canada can do about that. Um, Canada pulling out of the tax on ISIS, potentially it might cause conflict, but the, the number of uh, fighter jets were obviously so small that it was more symbolism, again, potentially about domestic politics. And in the past, you know, Canada does anger the United States. You may see Canada, you know, putting troops somewhere else as a way of kind of balancing that out. I finally, I would like to, add, this is somewhat selfish, add um, end with one area where I think there might be substantive change, or this might be a hope for substantive change, and some of you might guess what's coming here. Um, this is with regards to Canadian soft power. This has long been a liberal favorite and fits with wider rhetoric about improving Canada's image worldwide. Change might include, I'm going to read this from this text, change might include actually giving more freedom to Canada's external professionals, our diplomats, to carry out diplomacy as opposed to being an extension of the Canadian mining industry or having to relay everything through the Prime Minister's office as has occurred over the last few years. Such an approach, approach would see putting more professional diplomats in key countries instead of ex-politicians with no experience of diplomacy. And I know exactly where to start uh, as well. With G Gary Dewar in Washington, D.C., that's, uh, that's the only one that came to mind. Um, uh, so that's a bit of an in-joke, but anyways. Um, and expanding Canada's soft power might involve doing what other countries do, such as Germany, France, the UK, even the US, and what Canada used to do going back to the 70s, although again this began to wither under the Liberals, and that is put small amounts of money, you know, maybe the cost of a tire on an F-35, into Canadian cultural and educational activities abroad, maybe something like Canadian studies, not because it will make money for Canada, such small investments will generate economic benefits to Canada, but because such activities are good in themselves and they actually provide Canada with a higher profile on the international stage instead of doing what has been done the last few years of Canada sitting at home on its Chesterfield. Thanks.